Hello, I'm Sean Murray, and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. In this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate, and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. This week, we talk to a small band of investigative journalists that have taken Ireland by storm. In a country where journalism has a sustained track record in upholding the establishment status quo, are we now seeing the unravelling of a decades-old marriage of convenience? But before I speak to my next guest, let's get a quick overview on this week's topic. So let's introduce today's guest. Joining me today is Owen McNeil, Polly Doyle and Roman Shorthall from The Ditch. Hi guys, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks for having us. So first of all, Roman, I could ask you, for the audience's sake, what is The Ditch? Um, the Ditch, I suppose, is an online investigative uh, journalism website. Um, we set up about three years ago. I suppose we felt that there was a, a gap in the market for um, maybe a bit more focus on investigative journalism and we didn't really know exactly um, you know, how we were going to go about it but we knew that we wanted to, to focus uh, solely on investigative journalism and I mean we, we basically just we started off um, you know kind of digging into public registers and land registry records and stuff like that. And, you know, that, that seems to be like our, uh, it's still our bread and butter. Um, and that's kind of what we've been focusing on for, uh, yeah, nearly three years now. And whose idea was it to, to come together? Well, I had, I had worked as a journalist kind of on and off over the last 10 years or so. And, um, I'd worked on, this was, God, it's going back, it was during COVID, uh, a story about Leo Varadkar leaking a document to one of his friends in a doctor's union, um, a story that was originally published by Village Magazine, and I would have worked on that. And it was kind of from that then, I'd been talking to Roman a wee bit on and off, just kind of, um, just kind of phone calls and texts about about that story first of all and then Roman had been doing a bit of he'd been doing a bit of journalism himself in the background like he comes from a legal background himself but he had he'd worked in a few other stories in the background and it was partly just from just from these chats and kind of talking about what we you know what we thought the game was missing and that you know that we thought that there wasn't a a left-wing news outlet that kind of focused on things like, like land deals and property holdings, and you know, I suppose from some of our stuff, you know, like undeclared properties, all the rest. And um, we kind of thought, yeah, fuck it, why not? Let's go and give it a go. And you know, it, it was kind of, 
I'd say we would have spoken on and off maybe might have been two or three months maybe or so and we'd been gathering things and building things together and then Roman had come across it was a lovely story and I have to say like we launched yeah as Roman said um was it March or April yeah three years ago and Roman had come across it was during Covid and Michal Martin the most decent man in Ireland as we all know had you know, during a time when there were very strict prohibitions on the kind of events you could hold and attend, he attended a prohibited event down in Cork that was just so happened to be held in honour of his father, uh, Paddy the Champ Martin, who was an amateur boxer. And Roman came across this video of Miel Martin attending this event, and and he came across in this video, he, you know, he, he was telling an, an, an attending Garda to go and take her mask off for a wee photo opportunity, you know? And we just kind of thought, wow, that's great stuff, you know? And, and actually, funny enough, to go to Roman's point about, yeah, how there wasn't a, <laughs> how we felt that there wasn't a whole lot of adversarial or confrontational journalism. The Cork Echo had actually covered this event. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, like, isn't Neil Martin great? And we were kind of like, really? Like, you know, and, um, and look, Myself and Roman have kind of talked about this since, you know, and that was the first story that we published. And it did kind of come from, you know, having spoken about it all for whatever, two or three months. And it got to the point where we just said, right, we have to go and do this now and then keep on doing it, you know. We felt we had to launch with a big story. And I think that kind of story was the only kind of story that we could launch on. I do think, like, if the Irish Times or the Irish Independent had published that story, I think Mel Martin would have been in serious, serious danger. We kind of, you know, we kind of were hurt a little bit by the fact that, you know, people were going, who the fuck are the ditch? <laughs> like, you know, since then, yeah, we kind of just kept on at it and um, kind of started off maybe a story a week or so. And then we kind of ramped it up a wee bit. And now Paulie's come on board the last half year or so, like, so. Hopefully, only bigger and better things. <laughs> That's it. And speaking to yourself, Polly, I mean, why why is this work important? The short answer is that um, there was a lack of stories in the Irish media identifying wrongdoing on the part of people in positions of power and authority, right? And I was quite struck by you know how successful the guys had been, just the two of them, um, at you know uh, holding people to account, identifying wrongdoing in opposition to what the Irish media, you know, for the most part does and uh, has historically done, which is kind of um, run stories about politics that are focused on personalities or rely on government sources to kind of leak them stories so the narrative is kind of shaped a certain way. And so it's, I think it's important to, that there are outlets out there that kind of hold people to account and that they run these kinds of stories and, um, yeah. And, and has it been, because I know when you, when you crack that wee word, it's the same and I've seen it in film, how is the relationship between the likes of yourselves and, and others in journalism? Say, say, for example, others that would have been uh, comfortable with the, the, the status quo? Um, I think they're just kind of confused and vaguely annoyed by <laughs> the emergence of um, the ditch. There seems to be very much an attitude um, towards the ditch that we're not somehow legitimate, right? Um, you know, we'll run stories and the press will ignore them. And I think if they had another broad, a broadsheet had run them, they'd all end up kind of running them, if that, if that makes sense. Um, sometimes um, the work that we do is acknowledged and other times it isn't. It seems to be kind of random in a, in a way, you know. 
I've, like, I've got to say on that, like, I always kind of like it when you get, you know, a little bit of love or recognition from an unexpected source, you know, like where, you know, sometimes, yeah, I would agree with a lot of what Paulie has said, where there, yeah, there are mainstream journalists who don't like us or don't recognize us or whatever, and there are reasons for that, you know, but um, I do, I found that um, during the, was it, was it the summer or was it kind of late spring when we had published all these stories about Niall Collins? Neil Martin gets up in the doll, goes on a diatribe, <laughs> accuses us of being Russian assets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I was, I was kind of surprised by... I went and did an interview with RTE after that, and it was kind of like... It was a guy called Justin Murphy um, who... Uh, you know, I kind of knew what I was kind of getting my seven for, like, which is fine, you know, but, like, he kind of used the opportunity to hold me to account and kind of go, because, oh, yeah, because me and Martin had said that we're a political organization, that, you know, we're not a, you know, a conventional journalistic outlet, you know, and I had to kind of answer for that, you know, whereas if, yeah, if, if it was a mainstream journalist, it would be, you know, it would be a, you know, grave attack on the press. And certainly some of the reaction post that attack on us by Michal Martin was kind of, yeah, similar to what your man Justin Murphy was like. But I have to say, uh, very much respected um, Shane Ross in his Sunday Independent column that that weekend. Um, he he called it out for what it was. You know, he called it out for an attack on the press, an attack on the media. He also, if I recall correctly, he compared Michal Martin's rhetoric that day to be more fitting of someone like Putin, you know, in that it was an attack on the free press, you know. So I always enjoy that when, look, I wouldn't consider myself a liberal myself, you know, but I think when you do have... Sometimes, you know, people who actually abide by liberal principles like Shane Ross, like I kind of did appreciate that, you know. The good old Sunday Independent Day. <laughs> I'm sure some of you haven't had the misfortune of being called a troubles necrophiliac by the Sunday Independent. Who was that uh, in the... That's for another day. <laughs> was that RDE? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. The Sunday Independent no, 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 isn't, a, isn't a political organisation, though. It's completely apolitical oh, yeah. and they just stick to the facts and yeah, all that kind yeah. of thing. You know, if I was a political journalist, I would be asking myself, well, why am I considered to be some sort of a political operator, you know? Yeah, well, it's not political to uphold the status quo, but it is political to challenge it, yeah. you know. Yeah. And Neil Martin wouldn't actually repeat his what he said outside of the doll as well, crucially. I know, yeah. Well, that is crucial. We have, to, we have to give credit, though, to the established media for doing a great job of holding us to account. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, might, they might not want to hold the subjects of our stories to account the people with actual power, but, yeah, they've, they, they, they've certainly tried to hold us to account. It seems we, we only kind of get the phone call, um, you know, from RTE or, or um, other establishment media organisations when we're in trouble or they think we're in trouble. That's when they want to talk to us. Of course. You know, but when we have a big story, you know, and someone else is in trouble, it, you know, they don't really want to hear from us. Well, that's par for the course, as you well know now, Roman. Uh, Owen, just getting back to yourself, you had written, recently written a piece for Red Roof on the, the hate speech bill. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, look, I mean, I just think it's a terrible piece of legislation for so many reasons. Um, it's a proposed hate speech um, act that is it's working its way through the Oireachtas at the moment. It's, it's, it's gone through the Dáil and it's to come before the Shannad. It's, um, 
what can you say about it? It's you know, it's an, it's in, in, incredibly far-reaching. It effectively. Um, uh, <sighs> The parts that I'd be most worried about are the the powers that it would give the Guardi in investigating so-called hate offences, and the power that the that the guards would have for investigation of people's people's devices and um, and homes. And part of this bill, you know, aims to combat transphobic hate crime, right? And as part of that, it would empower the Guardi to investigate these potential crimes. But you know, the Guards are an organisation that shelved an internal gender policy because, in the words of um, Antoinette Cunningham, who is uh, she's a representative of one of the Guardi unions, like she said that a lot of the Guards don't know about this kind of thing, <laughs> like you know, and that you know, under this policy, you know, uh, Guards would have been. Uh, Possibly subject um, to disciplinary measures if they misgendered their colleagues, you know. And the guards say, "Oh no, like, we can't do this." Like, so like these are the guys that we're supposedly looking to combat these crimes. And I kind of find that the bit that I find mo that that I continue to find most frustrating about it is the fact that the loudest opponents of this bill are generally from the right, and you know these are people who I. I said, in, I said in the, um, in the piece I wrote for you that you know these are these are people who have been in paroxysms of um, <laughs> over o over phrases like "from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free." You know, um, these people think that that chant is beyond the pale, and they've been in hysterics over that. But neither um, uh, neither opposing this bill on the grounds of. They, as they would say, free speech. That's another kind of one that grinds my gears a wee bit. I always kind of find when Irish people talk about free speech, that to me is a bit of an Americanism. Like I always think of freedom of expression. But anyway, I also just think that I think that the left or the or the nominal left or the broad left, whatever you want to call it, has kind of ceded a lot of ground to the right in opposing this bill. And I think it's kind of wild in a country with our history of censorship you know on you know on the on the on the censorship of even published discussion about abortion and then particularly with section 31 which i kind of do think that a lot of what you've been saying and what paulie and roman have have been saying about this kind of um whatever you want to call it, a toothlessness or, an, or a kind of an impotence of the Irish establishment media. I think it's a legacy of Section 31 where, you know, when, well, obviously Section 31 first introduced in, um, I think it was 1960 in the Broadcasting Act, and then it was later in the 70s where measures were introduced to ban Republicans from the airwaves. Um, effectively, there were different ministers involved, you know, but one minister who certainly came down hard um, and certainly used these measures um, uh, uh, quite prodigiously was Conor Cruz O'Brien, a man who later joined the UK Unionist Party. <laughs> like, um, but you could see, like, throughout the course of Section 31, you know, there are kind of... There were little, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, pockets of resistance to it. Where I think there was there was one reporter who interviewed Sean McJiffan, and uh, he interviewed him, 
and then just read a transcript of what he had said. So technically, Sean McGiffan wasn't broadcast o o over the airwaves. This drove government mad, like you know. And then they kind of clamped down on it again. The end result of this was government telling journalists what they can and can't publish. And like, yeah, there were acts of, of resistance along the way, but broadly speaking, these guys just said, oh yeah, cool. <laughs> like if, if Conor Cruz O'Brien says we shouldn't interview these guys, I'm gonna go with him. And people get up on their high horse about this term, but I mean, if you can't call Conor Cruz O'Brien a West Brit, who can you call, you know, when he was it's just like, so to me, it's just kind of crazy that, you know, anyone who considers themselves broadly progressive could support this bill. But then, but then you'll see people then like Claire Byrne, um, who's an RTE presenter, uh, she was questioning, um, she was interviewing um, Liam Herrick from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. And, you know, like one of the lines of questioning that she put to him was, oh, well, Donald Trump Jr. and Elon Musk oppose this. Are you happy to be in their corner? And it's just like, I don't know. It's just like, is that the extent of, of your feelings on this? That like, all right, well, these bad people are opposing it. We better oppose it too. You know, it just kind of, yeah. I mean, like, I think, yeah, what I would like to see would be, you know, more progressive, liberal, left, socialist opposition to the bill because it's it's a terrible piece of legislation anyway but it's particularly bad in a country like Ireland. So getting to the meat on the bones, um, start with you Polly, what uh, for the audience's sake tell us about some of the the big catches that you've had. Um, well the big story that we had this year was that uh, Leo Varadkar had um, misled Sippo when they had um, asked him about um, a number of uh, donations that were undeclared. Now, to explain that, so under the law, if you receive a donation from an individual that's or a company over 600 euro, you have to declare it, and that donation cannot exceed um, 1,000 euro, right? So Sipo wrote to him in 2019, and they said, uh, Edelman bought a table at a fundraiser event that you, uh, that you ran. Um, we found that it wasn't declared, so can you please explain that? Varadkar's uh, explanation was that Edelman had been reimbursed by the individuals who were at the table, so therefore it didn't count as a donation exceeding a thousand euro, and none of it had to be um, none of it had to be declared because they were you know hundred euro, two hundred euro piece. Um, Sipo then checked with Edelman, and they said is this what happened here? Edelman wrote back and said, no, actually, that's not what happened. Um, and that then brought uh, something that Leo Varadkar had said explaining a donation from them in 2022 into question as well. Um, there were other undeclared donations from 2018 this uh, that year. One of them was from a uh, barrister. One of them was from the Attorney General, well, the now Attorney General, uh, Ross Fanning. And the other one was from Centric Health, right? Um, and... They asked, they wrote, Sippo wrote to Leo saying, are you satisfied? Now, he'd given the same explanation for, you know, these other donations saying they were all reimbursed, so I didn't have to declare them. They'd written to him saying, you know, can you explain, one, why Edelman are contradicting you, and two, you know, are you, are you satisfied that the other, the, this explanation, uh, you know, accounts for what's happened with these other donations? And he just ignored them, <laughs> right? <laughs> because Leo Varadkar doesn't have to answer questions to anyone, apparently. He doesn't have to... So he just refused to... And it's uh, Sippo as well. And it's Sippo as well, which is completely like, toothless, yeah. right? So he just said, he just instead of engaging with them and accounting for what he'd done, he was just like, no, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> and then they wrote to him again. 
and um, we did a story on it and he, he, uh, we asked him about it and Leo Varadkar then uh, released a statement to us saying I can confirm that I am not under investigation by SIPO, which was a very, I think he was trying to get get off on a kind of a technical term because it wasn't like an inquiry and maybe not technically an investigation or something like that. Response. Well, we, we actually Legal never said he was under investigation. We were careful with the language because yeah. of how the, the legislation is worded and we said that it was, um, we used words like probe and everything. SIPO is investigating, which is the language that the mainstream press use whenever SIPO stick an oar into Sinn Féin's business. It's always, oh, SIPO is investigating, so, but... Can't say about Leo Varadkar. See this as well, that that was one of the instances where the the media did pick it up and they ran with the headline, Leo Varadkar confirms that he is not under investigation by Super. <laughs> and there was also one journalist who's quite well known um, who contacted us kind of asking for what we had to back up, you know, what was what, what we said in the story. So, uh, you know, we kind of, you know, made sure that the, that well, we sent it on to him and, um, he didn't do anything with it, so I'm convinced that it was a uh, fact-finding mission. Sounds like it. And yourself, Roman, uh, what would you say would be one of the biggest stories that you've worked on? Um, I'd say probably my favourite story last year was the, the Niall Collins story that we did. So Niall Collins is a junior minister. Um, he's, the, so he's the Minister of State for Further Education. And the first story that we did, I think, was at the beginning of last year, related to a planning application that he had made, a historic planning application. And uh, basically on that planning application, he lied and said that he was living with his parents in order to circumvent um, planning rules, very strict planning rules, um, relating to one-off dwellings. He wanted to build uh, a one-off dwelling in Limerick where he's from and the problem was he already owned a house so he didn't have a housing need so in order to get around that as I said he he basically just lied and he said he was you know he was living with his parents he didn't own any property and uh, he got planning permission to build that house I mean some people would say um, you know that there's uh, and it is quite controversial you know the one-off housing rules they still exist um, and a lot of people would say that, you know, they're problematic. And I think a lot of people would um, tell fibs on the applications to kind of get around these things. Um, but, you know, this guy is a lawmaker and a lot of people who, who do things like that would have to face consequences for it. So we ran that story and I guess he kind of managed to weasel his way out of it. Um, and the media kind of ran with... Uh, whatever he was saying. He came into the doll and gave a statement and, you know, I think he thought that was the end of it. Uh, we did a little bit more digging and it turned out that he, um, his wife had purchased a parcel of land in Limerick that was owned by the council. And a month before the council voted to sell that piece of land, um, his wife had written in to the council and said, I want to buy this piece of land. Um, and uh, he voted. He was one of the people that voted. His uh, Fianna Fáil colleagues proposed the motion at a council meeting. He was a councillor at the time. And um, they voted to sell the piece of land 
which his wife then bought. And um, basically, no consequences. He's still a minister. There's, there is a, a guard investigation uh, into it. Uh, well, it's not, I believe it's not an investigation stage. They've said that they're doing a scoping exercise to see if any um, uh, legislation was broken, which it seems it might have been the, the Local Government Act, which states you have to recuse yourself um, when you know you've a, a potential beneficial interest. And um, there's also a complaint made to the Standards and Public Office Commission. But uh, he's still junior minister for, um, for further education. And there were a lot of other stories that we did um, on, on Niall Collins. A lot of, you know, I would say dodgy dealings, um, you know, uh, relating to himself. And um, yeah, he hasn't really had to properly account for any of it, you know. And yourself, Owen, how would you view one of your bigger stories? Yeah, I think like uh, I got a bit of crack out of the Robert Troy stories, which again, similar, um, he's another ex Fianna Fáil junior minister who, that was back when it was just myself and Roman, it was one August and the doll wasn't in session at the time, which, and this is another thing to get back to Irish media, you know, when this happens, you know, political correspondents will call it silly season because there's nothing to write about because because government departments, TDs, ministers aren't sending press releases. You know, like things are still happening, you know, but just because you're not getting spoon-fed stories, like, which is why, like, typically in August, certainly down south, there was a run of years there where it was always the same thing. There were, there'd be stories about out of control seagulls every August, like clockwork, like, and you'd have like some <laughs> headbanger senator, you know, going like, oh, the seagulls are out of control in Dublin, like, you know, we have to do something about this, like, this is like, like every year, like, you know. So, um, yeah, we fired into it. We'd covered Robert Troy before, and, you know, he was a guy to, you know, to go back to what we were saying about, you know, what the ditch, you know, our aspirations for it and all the rest, you know, we had first run stories about, um, his property holdings. You know, he's a multi-property landlord making a bomb off student accommodation down in Dublin. Uh, we'd already published stories like that where, you know, you get some reaction to, to those kind of stories. People going like, oh, well, fair play to him. Like, and they're kind of like, yeah, fine. Like, you know, like lots of other people had a problem with it, you know? And what I find very interesting about the Robert Troy series of stories was before we went before we went to publish, basically, basically Roman had found that he had sold property to a local authority, and when you do that, you have to declare it, and he hadn't done that. So we found this out, thought it was good, you know, and we just started speaking to people, you know, and um, funny enough, yeah, we found out that it wasn't just it, it wasn't just one time he'd done it, but he'd done it a second time with a different local authority, you know? So you're like, all right, okay, this is, this is pretty good, yeah, yeah. And we published the first story, and yeah, the media down tools, they were writing about out of control seagulls, et cetera, et cetera. Do the first story, and um, funnily enough, actually, I was, um, I was, uh, I was back home, and um, 
my mum was listening to Philip Boucher Hayes and fair play to him. He had he had Robert Troy on, and I think I said, I he'll hardly ask about that story, like you know. And, but right enough, yeah, fair play to Philip. He asked him, and Robert did some answer for it, you know. And so we were like, all right, okay, sweet. And a day or two later, we did the second story. Then you know, and, um, and then yeah, it starts kind of blowing up, like starts getting a little bit of heat on Twitter, and it's all good crack and all the rest, and like. All the way throughout this, you know, he, Robert Troy wouldn't speak to us. Like, or like we were asking him for comment and we got into this kind of, um, we got into this kind of, uh, like this kind of pattern of us asking him for comment for a story, him ignoring us, publishing a story, and then he'd have to go to, um, to the mainstream press then and then go, oh, well actually what happened here was this, that, the other, you know, and, and God, I think it must've been yeah, over the course of a week and, and this is, yeah, the one thing that, to take it back to his party leader, you know, Mion Martin, who said that, that we're a political organization, that we're hell-bent on taking down the government, that we're, you know, implying that we're Russian assets, all that kind of stuff. One thing that Mion Martin and his kind can't seem to grapple with is that, like, over the course of that week, the number of phone calls both Roman and I were receiving from people in his constituency. You know, like, there was one guy actually uh, called us up and he said it was the best thing to ever happen to Westmead. Like, you know, I mean, you know, like, quite regularly we'll do a story about, you know, state body or a public figure and, you know, you'll get a few calls afterwards or a few messages, but like, Robert Troy and Niall Collins actually as well, you know. The Niall Collins one as well was funny was, you know, I mean, the first story, um, or sorry, it, it wasn't the first story, there was another story about um, a property deal. Um, that was an anonymous email, you know, from someone who had been trying their best to have this story told, you know, by anyone, you know, and people didn't want to know about it, you know, and like, look, I'll try to be as, objective as possible about it like you know even just like we publish those stories actually funny enough i think the doll wasn't sitting either that time you know so again no one had anything to write about um it became the biggest you know for the at least a week you know it was the biggest story in the country like you know so like if the mainstream press could even just see that that like you know there's an appetite for this kind of stuff and that you know people want to read this kind of stuff like but they kind of find it hard to kind of get there like you know they're almost getting there but not maybe i wonder why now, you've, you've been very vocal online, uh, Ollie, about the, the, the growth of the, the right in Ireland. Um, do you want to tell me a bit about that? Yeah, you certainly see, you know, it's something that's certainly been building and building over the last number of years, you know. While, while Ireland doesn't have a, you know, there isn't a significant far-right presence in the doll, and there isn't a significant, you know, there isn't a powerful far-right party that has gained any kind of electoral success. Now, there are people like Maddie McGrath from Tipperary who will go around saying that Ireland's being colonised, you know, having very little to say about the continuing colonisation up north. He's very perturbed about what he considers a colonisation of people seeking refuge in the country, you know. Um, but yeah, while there isn't that kind of electorally successful far right, you know, for years there, there, there has been a relatively well organized far right community 
around the country. Now, you know, a lot of these guys are very sensitive about being called far right. You know, myself and the boys would talk about like, you know, there were scenes down in Ross Cray, you know, a uh, property that was going to be used to house refugees, you know, and people were busting, you know, like middle-aged men and women. We've, we've all seen the footage. These guys, you know, screaming at, at women and children, you know, supposedly they were very worried about, um, about un, you know, so-called unvetted military-age males, whereas here we have women and children, guys screaming at them all their ass, and you have all these guys going like, oh, well, I suppose this makes me far right now. And it's like, yeah, you might be. You might be if you're going to Ross Cray in the middle of the week to scream at women and children, you know? You're still tuned into The Conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs around Ireland. I'm joined by our special guests, Owen McNeil, Polly Doyle and Roman Shortall from the ditch. I, I'm actually just after remembering, you know that Norm Macdonald clip where you know we talked to Stephen Merchant. He was, England's not doing too well right now. <laughs> um, but um, you know, Ireland's not doing well. It's it's um, you know, like I would say, it's never really like, you know people like and the Kenny and Fine Gael would have said that we made a great recovery after the post um, after the 2008 crash. I would say we didn't. The austerity program, which was um, an ideological wealth transfer, in that you know 2011-ish to 2014-ish, um, that kind of you know um, uh, restructured Irish society in certain ways. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, hasn't been hasn't been great for the country. People are, you know, like. You don't need to be a genius to see, like, you know, there's a cost of living crisis, there's a housing crisis, you know, like, nobody's having a great time, you know, and against this, against the backdrop of all this, you know, Ireland down south, you know, like, we're, we're projected to have a budget surplus of 25 billion next year. Now, aside from the fact, it drives me mad, this, this obsession with, like, running a country like it's a company, it's not. Like, you know, like, we don't have to have a surplus, first of all. And second of all, spend the money, you know, like, go and spend it. But Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Green Coalition won't spend that money, you know. And this is... Why is that, though? Uh, and your eyes, why do you think they're not spending that money? I think it's... Um, first of all, I think it's ideological. I think um, Nigel Lawson, who was the he was the father of Nigella Lawson, he was a close advisor to Margaret Thatcher. In 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 his diaries, he would have said, you know, about the mass privatisation programmes in Britain during the eighties. Um, he says himself, you know, that like privatising rail networks and national utilities, it wasn't about you know what would bring best value for money or what would work best. He says specifically, you know, it's an ideological thing, you know, so I think that that is at play there where, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think our ruling class parties have any real commitment to, you know, programs like um, truly free education, truly free healthcare, um, you know, actual measures that will, you know, bring down the cost of housing. You know, like, let's be real about it as well. Like, I mean, uh, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, man, the Green Party, they, their primary constituency are property owners. And these guys, it's just, uh, they're, they're put in a kind of an awkward position where, you know, they're, 
the primary constituency uh, want to see their house values go up, but then also a lot of these people are going to find that their kids are going to be fucked over. Like, so it's just kind of strange balancing act. I think that's a problem. I also think you know to go to go back to Ross Cray, which was yeah the site of these of these protests. Um, it was announced this week that like you know, there's the, there's a guy down there, uh, local Fianna Fáil TD, Jackie Cahill, and he was you know very pleased to announce that government was you know it was this um, the refugees that were to be housed in Ross Cray. I believe it was a hotel, wasn't it? Like yeah. or one hotel. Jackie Cow has announced that there's a disused hotel in Ross Cray because, you know, the people who were involved in the protest were saying that, you know, the town needs a hotel, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And um, Jackie Cow has come out now and says this other disused hotel, the state is going to buy it and make a community hotel, you know. And like, <laughs> one thing that I like, you know, one of the... I want to out myself here, like, but like one of the most, you know, um, personally inspiring kind of uh, revolutions for me was, you know, when Fidel Castro <laughs> rolled up into Havana and basically said, see all these hotels that are owned by U.S. Capitol and the mafia, like, we're taking them now. They're ours. Like, you know, it was just like, to be blunt about it, it was just unreal <laughs> like you know like and that's what Castro and the boys did like you know and that was for the good of the revolution whereas you've guys like Jackie Cahill in Ross Cray going oh well the far right want a hotel so we're going to do this now you know and, uh, and just, 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 to, just to give um, just to give viewers like an idea of what Jackie Cahill uh, looks like he's like if you've ever seen The Wire he's like the, the big bald guy in The Wire you know <laughs> yeah. that's the sort of character so you can, you can just imagine him negotiating the purchase of this community hotel to kind of keep all these headbangers sweet, you know. <laughs> but it just goes to show that government, you know, repeatedly make these concessions to the right and the far right, whatever you want to call them, in ways that they don't make concessions to the left. I mean, one of the biggest protests of my life was held in Dublin last Saturday. It was a pro-Palestine march. and. Uh, hasn't you know like you know, tens of like if you want to give the the Irish Times figure on it you know tens of thousands other people were claiming you know good deal more than that you know but it hasn't it hasn't resulted in in any meaningful shift in government policy media is similar in that as well that where you have these flare-ups of you know a relatively well organized far right and what do they do they get their far right whisperer Mr. John McGurk from Grip a guy who's like I mean, what was it? Not a month or two ago. Like this is a guy. He's the editor of Gript. He's you know the deeply cynical man. Um, a guy who had a like for anyone else, it would be a career-ending mistake. Where there was a stabbing um, in North Dublin a number of months ago, and the the man who committed, or well, the man who allegedly committed the crime, is an immigrant and. John McGurk decided to publish this big exclusive about this man's um, his his history with immigration services. You know, 
made a big splash with it like in a week that he'd been you know he's been invited on to all the mainstream you know <laughs> all the mainstream channels going you know tell us about the far right John like you know like, you're not a member yourself but you'd know about them right like this kind of shit like you know they don't exist. but he had a complete like yeah for anyone else it would be a career ender you know he had the wrong guy like you know and, 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 and the guy he didn't name the guy but the guy was readily identifiable his name was being shared on Twitter he had to have guarded protection because of what John McGurk published, you know. But the media still will go like, oh, let's, let's listen to John McGurk about what the far right are thinking in ways that they don't really, you know, Irish media, there's a certain deference to the far right in ways that, you know, no one's asking what the far left or the hard left are thinking, you know, but we do kind of make those concessions to the far right, you know? Like as well, the threat that these guys have posed as they've kind of been building up momentum has been kind of uh, understated and not recognised by the kind of politicians and the media at every step. The official policy of Drew Harris, uh, the Garda Commissioner, and uh, the Minister for Justice, Alan McEntee, was that we need to keep these guys a light touch because somehow we'd be playing into their hands by arresting them and prosecuting them. Um, and so in the absence of the state taking any action against them, they've just been able to kind of metastasize into this really, really dangerous force that's going around burning down accommodation for uh, asylum seekers and refugees. All the while, um, the media has, um, you know, minimized, tried to minimize what's happening. Um, people like Mick Clifford, who wrote a piece saying, there's basically no far right in Ireland, right? Um, or then when they do acknowledge that these guys um, that these guys are a problem, they have to equivocate. So they'll say, there's a threat from far right and, of course, the far left as well. You know, Paul Murphy will, from time to time, go on a panel show to talk about the far right and he speaks extremely well on the issue, but almost without fail, you know, people say, well, didn't you sit around John Burton's car, <laughs> you know, even though he went to a trial and was found innocent by... Uh, a jury of his peers, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's just at every turn the the state has and the and the media have minimised it, you know. So I usually kind of end the show asking the panelists, you know, what's what happens for the year ahead. But I'm a bit privy to a new exciting project that's up, upcoming with, with with yourselves, Roman. Um, so uh, we're going to do a podcast um, with Red Wolf with yourself. Um, I think we're going to. Do initially 12, 13 episodes. Um, I think we're starting maybe next month in February. So I think we're really looking forward to that. It should be good crack. I think all the crew, we're, we're, we're looking forward to ourselves having us up in Belfast. And, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll see great success with it, which I think we will do anyhow. Listen, lads, it's great to have you up in Belfast. What we're going to do now is we're going to leave the studio and... and uh, work on our plans over the next coming month and uh, yeah I'm looking forward to it so Owen, Paulie, Roman thank you for coming to the show Thank you very much And that does it for another week We'd love for you to join the conversation by sharing the link to today's programme to help us grow our audience across all our social media platforms I'd once again like to thank our special guests Owen McNeil, Paulie Doyle and Roman Shorthall from The Ditch in the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.